0: Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Acts chapter 12. That's what we're going to be studying today, the whole chapter, Acts chapter 12. Uh, if you remember last week, we studied the end of Acts chapter 11, and at the end of Acts chapter 11, uh, a prediction was made about a famine that would happen, and so the church, the newly formed church in Antioch, uh, raised money and took up a collection, and, and then they sent that Relief money by the hand of Paul and Bar- well Saul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to help out the folks that were going through difficulty there, and uh, that's where we left it. So I just want to contrast that the love of the the love that the brothers and sisters in Christ are feeling towards one another, even though they're a great distance apart, Antioch to Jerusalem, with what we're going to see in our text today, which is the hatred for the church intensifying in Jerusalem. And the intensity of that hatred that's increasing is coming primarily in this narrative from the government, namely Herod. So I, I feel it necessary to share with you just a little bit because we throw around the name Herod a lot, but Herod is actually the name of a family. And uh, just just to make sure that we're all on the same page as to who this Herod family is, um, when Jesus was born, the person that was really in charge in, in these parts was was Herod the Great, as, as he is named, as he is called. During Jesus' ministry on the earth, Herod Antipas is primarily who's talked about, but others are mentioned as well because there was kind of a, was the, the kingdom got divided up into a tetrarch and uh, there, was, there was different rulers going on during that time. But by the time we get to the book of Acts, uh, the primary person in charge of the region is Herod Agrippa I, and that's who's in view today in our text. But it's confusing sometimes because at the end of the book of Acts, there's Herod Agrippa II, and that's not always spelled out for us in God's word. Sometimes Herod Agrippa II is referred to just as Agrippa, but there's two of those, so you got to be careful, right? So I just wanted to orient you a bit to the the, uh, Herod family tree, the person that we're the person that we're talking about in Acts chapter 12 is Herod Agrippa the first. And I know this is why I don't put maps up on the screen very often, but um, that this is his region. I know it's hard to see this, but but basically uh, this area here from uh, Judea, Samaria and on up into Galilee, this is where he is ruling uh, at this particular time. Now, um, we didn't, I didn't have you stand and read the text today because it's a long text, so I'm going to read it, and I'm going to make some comments kind of along the way to illustrate it, and then we'll get into our, uh, into our outline today. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he had saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Okay, a couple notes here. Depending on what commentator you talk to, a squad can be four or eight people, soldiers. So... Just to be clear, Peter is under the guard of 16 to 32 soldiers. That's, that's how many. Now, they have, the reason they have to do so many is, as you're going to learn, he's locked up with one to his right, one on one arm, one on the other arm. And this has to happen 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So there has to be shifts, so to speak. So, um, so that's going on. Now, um, he's not, Herod's not going to do anything with him during the unleavened bread or the Passover because those are high, sacred, holy holidays. Um, and so he's going to wait until after that's over, and he is going to then bring him out to the people. Verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries, Before the doors were guarding the prison And behold An angel of the Lord stood next to him And a light shone in the cell He struck Peter on the side and woke him Saying get up quickly And the chains fell off his hands Natural or supernatural to have chains Just randomly fall off your hands Supernatural very good Uh, So this is not just a human being This is not a human being This is probably you know as the text tells us This is a messenger from God An angel of the Lord And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, "Dress yourself and put on your sandals." And he did so. And he said to him, "Wrap your cloak around you and follow me." And he went out and followed him, and he did not know what he was, what was being done by the angel. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. Apparently, Peter has not had his morning coffee yet, and he's not fully awake. Okay, he's still uh, dreaming, or thinks he's dreaming uh he did not know what was real but thought he was seeing a vision verse 10 then when he had passed by when they had passed by the first and second guard now just a comment here how did, how does he make it past the guard is the angel does the angel resemble one of the roman guards and peter's all wrapped up in a cloak and it looks like he's escorting a prisoner i don't know is he doing the the jedi mind trick you know where he says uh this is not the prisoner that you need to concern yourself with. And the guy's, okay, you can pass. Now, I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. But somehow, this angel with Peter with the cloak wrapped around him is able to make it past the first and second guard. They came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, supernatural or natural. This was before Walmart doors you know, where you just walk up to it and the motion sensor opens the door. Now, I walk really fast and I hit those doors most of the time because they don't open fast enough for my long legs. But um, uh, so I'm frequently having to stop and wait for them to open. But anyway, it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him, gone. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know, or I'm sorry, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. I wonder what is loaded into that, what they were expecting comment. Um, was this like, was this going to be Jesus 2.0 where Herod was going to bring him out to the people of Jerusalem like Pontius Pilate did with Jesus and they were going to say, hey, crucify this guy, crucify him. Um, You know, there's an old saying, you know, from the Old West, everybody shows up for a hanging. So it could be that people were waiting with great anticipation for the Passover to be over so that they could put down uh, one of the Christian leaders. Anyway, verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Some scholars believe that this is the home where everybody was waiting for Jesus when he, after he had resurrected. Don't know. Um, or that this was what, the place where they had the upper room where they had the last supper. John Mark's mother Mary is obviously wealthy. She has a large place and she has servants, right? Anyway, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Now, I just want to say right here that this this is a good verse. Verse fourteen is a good verse to uh, to tell someone about the uh, to to illustrate the veracity, the truthfulness of scripture. because this is totally what a person would do, right? Who would write this in the story unless it i I mean Luke is making the the detailed account. Who would put this in the story unless it really happened? She is they're upstairs, everybody's praying diligently wholeheartedly for Peter the Lord release Peter from Herod you know and all this kind of stuff and the servant girl answers the gate and recognizes Peter's voice and she's so overjoyed that she doesn't even let Peter in the house she just leaves and goes and tells everybody what's going on so Peter's out there still in danger right verse 15 then they said to her you are out of your mind now that's another verse that talks that I think illustrates the truthfulness of scripture because this is what we as Christians do right we, we pray for, some, for God to work a miracle. And then when he actually works a miracle and this reported to us, we go, "No, uh that didn't happen. And yet, that's exactly what is reported here. They said, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It is his angel. I don't know what that means, but that's what they thought. This is not Peter. This is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. The James that he's talking about was not the James that was dead, likely, because he knew that he was dead. Likely, the James that he's talking about is James, the brother of Jesus, who was known to be a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And so um, that's the James, I think, that we have in view. James, the brother of John, is dead. Verse 18. "Now Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. There's a text variant in this passage, meaning some of the older manuscripts vary from the newer manuscripts. And it doesn't, uh, some of the older manuscripts don't say that they were put to death, but that they were led away. But all scholars agree that when these soldiers got in trouble for losing their prisoner, you had one job. Don't lose Peter. When these soldiers are led away because they, they've done the one thing that they were not supposed to do, which is lose Peter, that the implication would have been that they would have been put to death. So, some, uh, that is the thinking behind why that was found in some newer manuscripts. Anyway, I just want to make you aware of that. Verse twenty. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and he came to him with, uh, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. And they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Tyre and Sidon were not agricultural cities. And so they were dependent on the more fertile Galilee and Judea areas to provide crops, food for the people. Um, on, a, on an appointed day, verse 21, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on, on, upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, probably returning to Antioch, right? Bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So Barnabas and Saul are making their way back to Antioch uh, with John Mark in tow. All right, so let's look at this text this morning. First of all, what would motivate Herod Agrippa to take the action that he did? It's important that we talk about this before we get deeply into the text. What would motivate him to take the action that he did? And here's the answer. It's simple, politics. Politics. The one job that King Herod Agrippa has is to maintain law and order in his region and not give the Roman empire an excuse to remove him from power. And in order to do that, he's got to keep things pretty quiet, pretty calm. And think about this. He is in alliance with the Jewish leadership, okay? The Jewish leadership has control of the temple in Jerusalem via the Sadducees and the synagogues that dot the landscape around the territory that he rules through the Pharisees. The Pharisees control the synagogues, the Sadducees control the temple in Jerusalem. And if you think about it, there's a tremendous amount of influence there with the people, the Jewish people. In other words, if Herod and the Jewish leadership are in alignment, then then they can control the narrative out there and they can make sure that people don't rise up in rebellion and try to overthrow Herod and all this kinds of stuff. And so with all that going on, now you've got this group that's forming and it's coming up called the Christians and they're causing a disturbance in Jerusalem. Now, is Herod, Herod is a, is a skilled politician, third generation after Herod the Great. Is he going to side with this upstart Christian group because he knows the stories about Jesus resurrecting from the dead and working all these miracles and stuff? So there may be truth to this, to the whole account of Jesus but this is a small group, a fledgling fledgling group, and it's upsetting the whole kingdom in terms of the Jews and how they think about all this. Is he going to side with the Christians? Or is he going to side with the Jews who have a pre-established influence structure that they can peddle their narrative out to the people? Well, Herod's not a dummy. And so he sides with, he sides with the Jewish leadership. And he goes after the Christians. If you're going to go after a movement and you want to shut it down, who do you go after? You go after their leaders. So he's already killed James. He's the first apostle to die. And now he's going after Peter. You notice anything about that? Who was in Jesus' inner circle? Peter, James, and John. See what's going on here? He's, Agrippa is no dummy. He's taking out the head honchos. Now, I want to be honest with you before we launch off uh, before we get too far here, um, let's be honest about Acts chapter twelve. If you go and you look at five different commentaries about Acts chapter twelve, if you listen to five different sermons from five different pastors on Acts chapter twelve, you're going to get five distinctly different takes, which makes it hard for me to do my job because you'd like them to all say the same thing, and then I could just like go along with that and you know give you uh, 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 give you my take, but you know with a whole bunch of force behind it from different scholars and pastors. So what I'm giving you today comes with that caveat that there's not consensus on what Acts chapter two, there's consensus on what it says, but there's not consensus on what it means to us today. And so I'm gonna give you uh, my take on it. Last thing I'll share. This is the last time that we're gonna see the camera really focused, the camera of the book of Acts really focused on Peter. Because in Acts chapter 13, the camera is gonna swing to, over to Antioch again and we're gonna pick up Saul and Barnabas and their the beginning of their missionary journeys around the known world—and so, um, uh, just to just to let you know about that. This morning, I'm going to present to you a bit of a court case, uh, and so I've titled the sermon "God versus Herod," or "Herod versus God." God versus Herod, and um, and so I'm going to kind of present it to you that way. I think this case—I think this chapter—is an indictment against Herod, and by extension human government on the earth. I think think what is going on here is that um, what we see is when human government is exercised in such a way that goes against what God has said, it's doomed to failure. And that's really good news for us, isn't it? Because we have some human government around us that's not operating according to God's word. And it's good to know that though they can they, they can exercise some authority and do some things. It's doomed to failure. So, let, let's uh, begin our court case this morning. Hear ye, hear ye, all you brothers and sisters at Delaware Bible Church. I'm today presenting a complaint. And here's the complaint that I'm presenting. It is alleged, ladies and gentlemen, that King Herod Agrippa I did attempt to rule his kingdom with no consideration given to God. He is charged with one count of failure to rule wisely on the earth. I will be presenting to you three exhibits this morning that I think are designed from Acts chapter 12 to show you the glory of God and the failure, the abject failure of Herod Agrippa I. And so without further ado, I present to you exhibit A, sovereignty, sovereignty. Now one definition of sovereignty, and I think it's a good one, is to possess supreme power is what sovereignty is. And I don't know if you know this or not, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, but on the earth there have been in the past kings, queens, and other rulers who have referred themselves, referred to referred themselves as, referred to themselves as, I don't know what's wrong with my brain today, having a stroke, um, referred to themselves as sovereigns, sovereigns. Meaning they have ultimate power and authority in their kingdom. Some have even, some kings, some queens have even referred to their position on the earth and their exercise of authority as something called a divine, they have a divine right. Meaning, this is what they mean by that, they feel like or they understand life that they have been placed in this this position of authority, this position of sovereignty by God himself and so can exercise their control however they see fit because after all, God has placed them there. Now, before we move on too far, let's just look at the folly of that understanding. Because God's, we, we have God's revealed will in the form of the Bible, we don't have God's sovereign will. In other words, we don't know what exactly the details of how he's going to work out his, his plan. And so any particular king or queen or anyone who would call themselves a sovereign doesn't know if they are an instrument placed there by God to benefit the people that they serve or to, to serve as an example of what not to do. You get me? In other words, to, they're gonna exercise their authority in such a way that's going to show the people that they rule over the folly, of human, the, the folly of a human being who leads in such a way that departs from God's word and thus draw their hearts to God himself and not to the king or queen. They don't know that. So to claim divine right is kind of foolish. It's a, it's a failure to understand the dynamics of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But as we talk about sovereignty, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, let me just just point out a few things that you may or may not know. Number one, and we see this in the text this morning, man's sovereignty, quote unquote, depends on public opinion and is very fragile. Not only do we see in the text that after, look at what it says in verse two, that Herod killed James with the brother of John with the sword Herod killed James the brother of John with the sword and when he saw that it pleased the Jews he proceeded to arrest Peter also see what's going on here Herod made a move the people said alright 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 and so he said oh they like, they like me they like what I'm doing here so I'm going to do some more I'm going to go ahead and arrest Peter but even in arresting Peter, he couldn't do everything that he wanted because he arrested Peter during the time of, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's a high and sacred holiday. So Herod knows, well, if I execute him during the high and sacred holiday, I'm going to be in trouble with the Jews. So I'm going to have to wait till at least after Passover to present him to the people. Herod's sovereignty, his sovereignty, Supreme power is not really supreme power. It is based in public opinion. Now, let's talk talk briefly about the arrogance of forgetting God. The arrogance of forgetting God. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I don't know if you have any recollection of biblical history, but human human leadership on the earth is not very skilled at keeping Jesus and his people from doing what God wants them to do. Have you noticed that? Let me give you some examples of that. Herod the Great, this is Agrippa I's grandfather. Herod the Great did everything that he could. Once he learned that Jesus, the King of the Jews, had been born in Bethlehem, he did everything that he could to wipe him off the face of the planet, including killing all boys a certain age and younger. Was he able to keep Jesus down? No. What did God do? I'll send Joseph a dream, go to Egypt, you know. And they fled by night. Herod was completely inept. Herod the Great was completely inept at killing Jesus, despite the fact that he used his human cunning and his political savvy to trick the wise men from the East. It didn't work. Second, I don't know if you know this or not, but Pontius Pilate, after uh, Jesus had been crucified and he was placed in the tomb, they sealed the grave and they placed a guard there. Was Pilate able to keep Jesus in the grave? He was not. Thank the Lord. I mean, uh, the resurrection, one guy said it this way, the resurrection was proof that the the check that Jesus wrote with his life to pay for our sins cleared. Pilate could not keep Jesus in the grave despite all his efforts Despite the fact that when Jesus rose from the grave, uh, he paid people to generate stories and put out propaganda, he couldn't stop it. Earlier in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 5, the high priest, the high priest did not like this uprising of Christians in Jerusalem. And so he had all of the apostles arrested and thrown in jail. Then he did what leaders do. He had a meeting. Let's get all the Sanhedrin together and let's talk about what we're going to do to these guys, these apostles. Little did they know that there weren't. while they were gathering, having a meeting, you know, serving bagels and water and everything, an angel of the Lord let them out of prison and, and instructed them, go back to the temple complex and start preaching again. And so they did. So these guys are over here having this meeting about what we're gonna do with these guys. And somebody has to come and tell them, uh, I don't know what you guys are talking about because they're out and they're back in the temple complex preaching. You see what I'm saying here? The, sover- the so-called, quote unquote, sovereignty of man cannot stand up at all to God's sovereignty to his plans it's based in public opinion and to the degree that it ignores what God is doing on the earth it's just it just looks foolish so given that history it makes sense that in our text today that Herod would put four squads somewhere between 16 and 32 men to guard Peter in shifts so there will be coverage 24 hours a day. I mean, he does not want what happened to his grandfather and what happened to the people before him to happen to him. Moreover, let's talk about morality, which is a distinction between what is right and what is wrong. Who gets to say what is good and what is evil what is right and what is wrong folks we're living right now in 2022 we're living in what what is referred to as postmodernism some people think that even the postmodernist age is coming to a close and giving way to something more mystical but in this time that we live in people say things like this i mean they say them out loud as if they're sincere this is my truth your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth It's right for me, it may not be right for you, but it's right for me. That is evil in my sight. Now that might be fine with you, but that's evil in my sight. I don't know if you are sensing in our country the the fracturing of our culture and the ripping apart of of our people. But if you don't understand that that fracturing and that ripping apart is because we've departed from a common understanding of what is right and wrong according to God and we have instead given ourselves over in many ways to what we think or what we feel is right or we feel is wrong to the point where two human beings are getting we're getting to the point where two human beings unless you know especially if they're not Christian human beings can't even agree at all about what is right and wrong God's morality never changes. We cannot ground our morality in what God, grounding our morality in what God has said makes sense. Man's morality shifts all over the place. I guarantee you the things that, the things that I'm only 49 years old, the things that we thought were just the most evil, despicable things when we were children, when I was a child, today are accepted as not just a valid lifestyle, but something to be celebrated. And the things that, the things that, uh, that we valued as, when I was a child today are despised as being old fashioned and out of date. Can I just, I, I just need to share this with you before we go on, sidebar. May I approach the bench? <laughs> Saying something is old fashioned and out of date is not an argument. It's a ridicule. It's a club to beat you about the head and face. Something that, saying something is old fashioned and out of date is not a, an argument whether, about whether something is healthy for the person that's practicing it or unhealthy for, some, for the person that's practicing That's not an argument. So when somebody tells to you, ah, oh, you're living in the past, you're old fashioned, you're just an old fuddy dud, say, okay, I get it. You've just insulted me, fine, I'll take it. Now, can we move past the insult and talk about whether this particular behavior, for example, not lying, not telling lies with our mouth. Even if you're trying to earn political points or, or influence the culture in a direction that you think is, is wise, that lying is a sin, it's evil. It's not good. It separates us as people and it, tear, it rips apart trust. Imagine a world where nobody tells lies, right? Where, where generally speaking, most of the time, we hear the truth. It's the exception when we hear a lie, not the norm. Be a much better place to live. Okay, Your Honor, I'd like to continue the. Uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'd like to continue. You see, if we don't adopt God's understanding of right and wrong, we will create our own as human beings, and that will lead to our destruction because it'll shift all over the place. And it has been shifting all over the place. Now, when it comes to sovereignty, God depends on no one. His sovereignty is fixed. Look at what the scripture says. Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Daniel four thirty five All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? God has supreme power. He spoke this world into existence. If he wants Peter out of prison, he'll get him out of prison. If he wants Herod dead, he'll kill him. If he wants James to die, he'll allow that to happen as well. So God is the one who who decides who lives and who dies. Herod is a completely inept he thinks he, he thinks that he's a sovereign, and he thinks that he can do things. But he, when he, all of his attempts fail. Now, I just want to say to wrap up Exhibit A that God's sovereignty is also mysterious. One of the questions that I kind of, that made me beat my head against my Bible this week is why does Peter live and James die? These are two apostles, two of Jesus' inner circle. And we don't even get a full sentence to describe. It's just a half a sentence that we get that says, Peter, or James, the brother of John, was put to death with a sword. We get half a sentence. And then we get, basically, the majority of the rest of the chapter to describe how Peter went through this elaborate thing with an angel and was released from prison and gates, and chains, gates opening, chains falling off, and Rhoda not opening the gate, and all this kind of stuff. Why? I don't know why, because God's sovereign will is often mysterious, but we know that he works all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and that our good God, our sovereign God, in allowing James to die in the way that he did at the time that he did, somehow furthered his plan on the earth, and that's hard, because some brothers and sisters, sometimes we have loved ones that suffer and die, and we don't get it. It's hard to comprehend and understand. We want to live in a world where good people just live on and on and on, and all the evil people die. But that's not the way God has ordained life to work. I do have some interesting thoughts about this, though, and I'll just share them briefly. James and John were referred to by Jesus as the sons of thunder in Mark 3.17. Jesus' inner circle included Peter, James, and John. In Mark 10, 35 to 45, James and John approached Jesus with this request. When you you inherit your kingdom, allow that one of us sit on your right hand and one of us sit on your left hand. I'm paraphrasing. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they made some statement like they are. And I want to point out to you that these guys were kind of obnoxious. In Luke 9, chapter 9, verse 54, uh, when it says, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to, to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume these people? That's the kind of guys James and John were. But what the Bible points out to us is this. Just, this is just interesting facts, just good to know. James is the first apostle to die. And John is the last, his brother. James uh, is killed by Herod, with, by Herod with the sword. John goes on to write the Gospel of John, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John. He writes the book of Revelation. He's exiled to the island of Patmos and sees this vision and writes it down. Um, it's, it's just interesting. And, and why? Why is it that these two brothers. One dies almost immediately after the initiation of the church, and one dies after all the apostles are gone. Don't know, this is part of God's mysterious will that he, his sovereignty, that he exercises on the earth. Our job is to trust him. Exhibit B, authority. What is authority? Authority is to exercise the power that you've been given. So we're gonna see in this text God exercise his power, use his authority, and we're going to see Herod exercise his power, use his authority. How does God exercise his authority? Well, God exercises his authority for good, right? God, the all-powerful, all-good, all-wise, ever-present creator of the universe, created man in his image and likeness. He, he put us in the Garden of Eden. He gave us one job to do, to cultivate the garden to to rule over the earth, to subdue it. He gave us one rule to follow. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And what did our our fathers and our, our father and mother, Adam and Eve, do? They ate of the fruit. They were tempted and they ate, plunging humanity into sin. And God who created everything by the word of his mouth could have spoken another word and just vaporized everything and said, problem solved. That was a good day. Let's do something different now. But God did not do that. God, our good God, took his supreme power and exercised his authority in such a way, exercised that power in such a way to offer salvation from sin to all people to look down upon those those all of us who had rebelled and to, to to have grace and mercy and starting with really starting after the fall began to show us our wicked depraved sinful hearts and begin to show us what a relationship with him would look like all the way from Abraham faith Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, all the way to the New Testament where Jesus arrived. God took on flesh, dwelled among us, and laid down his life to make payment for our sin. Do you know, brothers and sisters, of anyone, any human authority that's ever even come close to matching this story? that's ever come close to putting themselves, their family on the line in in such a sacrificial kind of way for the benefit of the people they serve? Why do we put our trust in human beings, our good and holy and right God, not only did he give us, offer us salvation through Jesus Christ, he, he comes into our lives through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and begins this work of transformation from a lover of self to a lover of God and others. He comes into our lives to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. It's incredible. This is how God chooses to exercise his supreme power. To save us. To transform us. And eventually to bring us home to be with him forever. Well, how do we see Herod? How do we see man? Man can, man can use authority wisely under God. But often, often, more often than not, I find these days, as I look around this planet, we see men using their power to retain their power. Look at what Herod did. Herod is a great example. Herod killed James. He, that made him look good before the Jews. So then he arrested Peter. And then he had a dispute with Tyre and Sidon. And so he said, okay, well, let's just not ship them any more ag- agricultural items. And let's see how they squeal then. But you know, if you read this text carefully, if you read this text carefully, you'll see that even Herod, with all of his pomp and all of his wisdom and all of his governing abilities, could not keep Tyre and Sidon from infiltrating his administration and getting right to the guy who is his chamberlain, which is the guy that's in charge of his sleeping quarters, probably a very close advisor, a very trusted advisor. Somehow, Tyre and Sidon, I don't know if it was through bribery or what, but they influenced and they got to blast us. One of the king's closest advisors, likely. And that's how they penetrated and got into uh, to, to get Herod to, you know, relent and to begin to lift the sanctions, so to speak, and start sending them food again because his administration was corrupt. So even Herod, who's intending to turn the screws on Tyre and Sidon, he can't even accomplish that right because he can't control the people in his administration. See, he's, human government, human authority is no match to God's. And finally, we see, just, just generally speaking, people can emulate God's attributes and how they exercise authority, meaning we can choose human beings who are put in places of leadership and authority can, can choose to use that authority under God meaning to adopt his ways, to think about what he says is true and to, to govern appropriately. First Corinthians 10.31 says this, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, give, uh, do all to the glory of God. Romans 13 talks about how human government, ideally speaking, should punish that which is evil and reward that which is good, according to what God says is good. So we, have a, we can do it. But oftentimes, and more and more these days, we see human beings using their authority to retain their power and authority. This brings me, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to exhibit C, my final exhibit, and that is glory. Glory is put on display in this text. What is glory? Well, one definition. There's many, to be magnificent, to be splendid, Here's the definition, though. To be recognized for the exercise of power. In other words, if someone were to exercise their power with great skill, with great great excellence, with great wisdom, they would be glorified by people. And we see in this text, with man, that glory is undeserved. Again, we talked about Genesis 3, the fall of man, We talk about Romans 3.23, it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we really have our heads screwed on straight, we understand that man's best hope for recognition among men is Matthew 6.33, which is, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do things God's way. Conduct your life God's way. Exercise your leadership God's way. And um, if you're wise, you will. uh, When you do receive any kind of glory from men, you'll attribute that to God because that's the one who is worthy after all he's the one that gave us his word he's the one that rescued us from our sin he's the one that lets us lay our heads down on the pillow at night with peace knowing that if we were to die while we sleep we will be with him so he gets all the glory look at look at this Verse 20, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamber, and they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, and he took a seat upon the throne. See what's going on here. Royal, I'm putting on my royal robes. I'm a sovereign. I'm sitting on my throne. I'm a sovereign. Josephus, in, his, in this book, uh, Antiquities, Tells us, a little about this, tells us a little bit about this episode and the royal robes that he put on. He put on a gown, a, an outer garment, that was made primarily of silver. And so when the, when the light hit it, it shone. It reflected, and it, it was very bright. And so even in the garment that he put on, it appears that he was seeking the glory for himself. Anyway, he delivered an oration to them and the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. The people were attributing to Herod godlike status. I don't know if you know the history of your Bible. God doesn't appreciate that. And oftentimes it does not end well for the people who do it? What's the text tell us? Verse twenty-three. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the glory, God the glory. Josephus writes about this too. It was an agonizing and excruciating death over several days. His abdominal pain started, according to Josephus, as he was giving this address, and it culminated in his death. And when they, when he finally died, his his abdomen was distended, and they when they opened him up, full of worms. Why? Because God alone deserves the glory. God alone deserves the glory. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I do not give. I give to no other, nor praise to carved idols. Isaiah forty-eight eleven. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should I, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Our God is a jealous God. And if you don't believe that, then just think of Ananias and Sapphira. They didn't make it. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he was parading around in his royal palace going, look at this land, look at this city that I've made, I'm such a great ruler, and God immediately turned him into a beast. Until the day when Nebuchadnezzar confessed with his lips, there is one God, the God of Israel. Tower of Babel, let us make a name for ourselves, let us construct a tower all the way to the heavens. And God said, no. Let's confuse your languages a little bit and send you on your way. Moses struck the, struck the rock, water flowed out, didn't give glory to God. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. And there's modern examples, all kinds of them. Nazi Germany tried to justify their extermination of the Jews with a Christian premise. They were wrong. Their interpretation of God's word was all messed up. They still tried to do it anyway. And I don't know if you know your history, but stuff for Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany didn't end well. So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I think there's only one verdict that you can reach this morning. I've given you exhibit A, sovereignty. I've shared with you exhibit B, authority. I've laid out exhibit C, glory. I think there's only one verdict that you can reach this morning, and that is guilty. Herod is found guilty, I believe, of a failure to act wisely on the earth. His sentence is death by the angel of the Lord and subsequent to be eaten by worms. The sentence has already been carried out. Now, for those of you that are real Bible nerds, uh, let me give you the reference in Josephus where you can read about his death. Josephus 17.6.5, Antiquities, Josephus Antiquities 17.6.5. I think you can find that online for free. It's, a, it's pretty gruesome. All right. If you agree with me, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, then here are the lessons that we can learn from this text this morning. There are many people out there, a lot of voices out there in the culture today saying this, you cannot legislate morality. And I've thought about that phrase for a long time, and I find it to be completely untrue. All the time, we set policies and laws that say we declare this to be a bad thing, so we're making a law and policy against it. We, we think this is a good thing, so we're setting a law, we're making a policy for it. We make good and evil judgments all the time. So I'll at least as a minimum say this, some say that you cannot legislate morality, but you certainly cannot legislate without it. And the only morality that's fixed, the only morality that's healthy for you and me, that can bind us together as a people and move us forward in this life is what God has said in his holy word. Secondly, I would just encourage you, there's a lot of things that I shared today. There's a lot of things in this text specifically pertaining to what's going on even in our country today and how authority is exercised and the glory that's bestowed upon people. And because we, by and large, have adopted two different sets of morality in this country, we very much exist on two different... We we, we exist on two different poles. There's some nuance in there, but very, to, to some degree, if you can get, like, everybody in your group to vote for you, to put you into office, plus maybe one or two from the other team, you win by a slim majority, but you win. And then you proceed to exercise your authority in such a way that will keep you in power. It's sick stuff. One final note, and I know I'm over on time, but one final note, and I say this in all love and Christian admiration for the body of Christ. I say this to edify. There are people who want to get into positions of power and authority who will burst on the scene. They have a very clean cut look. They say all the right Christian buzzwords But if you were to judge them by their actions, the way they live, it doesn't align in any way with what they say. And I have no one person in mind, in case you're asking. Can I just say, we need to be evaluating folks by the fruit of their life, how they live. I have all the love and forgiveness for a person that's made a terrible, awful that's committed a terrible, awful sin and have repented to the Lord and turned away from that way of life and are now are walking in the newness of faith in Christ and are displaying that in their actions. I have nothing but love for that person. I think that oftentimes we look at people by, and we evaluate them by what they say when their actions speak 180 degrees the other direction. Be careful. Father, thank you for showing us this case of how you exercise your sovereignty, your authority, and reminding us that you deserve all the glory. And contrasting that in this passage with how Herod thinks about himself as sovereign, exercises his authority, and mistakenly thinks that he deserves any glory Father, I pray that this would help us to to navigate in this world to see life more crisply and clearly now that the, the light of your word has been shown upon it and that we would make wise decisions as we navigate this world. Help us to do that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.